Military Mom Talk Radio. We know behind every soldier, sailor, airman, and marine is the family supporting them. With over 200 episodes in 17 countries, over five seasons, with three million monthly listeners, we are Radio Strong. Now, here are your hosts, Sandra Beck and Robin Boyd. everybody, this is Sandra Beck, and I'm so excited to be back with Dr. Carol Hughes and Bruce Fredenberg, and they have written a book called Home Will Never Be the Same Again, and I think this is such an important work because it's a topic that is often just dismissed. In fact, when I was talking to some friends this weekend at a get-together, I talked about, have you guys ever heard of what a gray divorce was? And many of them hadn't. And I said, you know, it's when you get divorced and you have grown children. And I couldn't believe the, I couldn't believe the reaction first, which is, what does it matter? They're grownups. It doesn't matter at all. They should be fine. They have all the tools, blah, 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 blah. You need to focus on the kids, Sam. You really need to get with the kids. And, you know, I said to them, when the show comes out, I'm going to send you a link because you're in for an eye opener. And so I think it's really important, the work that, that Carol and Bruce have done, and their books are available on Amazon and Audible. And um, the other thing that came out really super clear was there was one guy there who kind of stood back to the side. He was quiet. And I walked over to him and his name's Bob. And I said, Bob, are your parents divorced? And he goes, my parents are getting a divorce. And he goes, I feel so stupid because I'm going through the stuff that I remember your kids going through. And I'm a grown man and I should know better. And I was so blown away because we want to dispel that myth right here, right now, there is no way to know better. And I'm going to go to Carol first. How would you respond to the person that says, I'm an adult, I should know better, I have the tools? So I would, I think I would first ask him, well, what are those tools, Bob? And just see what he says. (laughs) And then whatever he says, likely I would respond with, Well, gosh, you know, there's so many losses that adult children experience that minor children don't experience. So it really is a different animal, so to speak. And I would educate him about all those losses. It really feels, adult children say that it feels like uh, the the rock that was their family uh, was sucked into an earthquake fault. Right. Right. It's just not there anymore. It's completely obliterated or even blown apart. Bruce, I'm going to go to you and ask you, what would you say to Bob um, about his concept that, you know, he's a grown up, he should be fine? Bruce, I'm going to need you to unmute your... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, I would tell Bob that I can understand that. And although my parents did not divorce, there was a time when my mother confided in me that she was planning to divorce my father. Uh, Later, her health deteriorated and she thought she'd never get insurance again, so they didn't divorce. But I remember at the time, I was about 30, 31 maybe. I was in graduate school. I was married. I had been self-supporting for a long time. And I remember being really surprised with all the conflicting feelings I had that 
um, somehow I, I felt guilty that I had that there it was happening to them and I couldn't do anything about it. I I felt confused. Uh, I just sort of had an overall sense. I didn't understand enough to really go through the you know the list of losses. I just remember feeling kind of stunned. And even though I had thought that they ought to divorce all the time I was growing up, they fought all the time. It was a real different reality to have it happening. And I remember thinking, you know, I'm in graduate school. I'm studying this stuff. I'm working in a counseling agency. I'm a grown up, and, and I felt lost. I think it's very important that, you know, when we give these labels, you know, I'm a grown up, you know, that magically being a grown up means somehow you know how to navigate all these different situations and emotions and feelings. And not only your feelings, but the feelings of your siblings and the, um, you know, the, the people that are involved in your home circle, you know, that's one thing that when I talked a little bit at length with Bob, he shared with me how frustrating it was because each one of his siblings dealt with it differently. And if you're with a big family, you know, like when my mom died, you know, we had five or six siblings sitting in the front row of the church and everybody was kind of arguing and handling it differently. Everybody grieved differently. They all had different points of view, should they, should they, what should they do? So it causes this kind of residual ripple effect of conflict. And I'm going to go to you, Carol, to talk a little bit about that because people don't divorce in a vacuum. I don't care how old you are. Mm -hmm. That's very true. Uh, A lot of times what's happened with the parents is they've married maybe at a young age before they really knew themselves or each other very well you know, the romantic idea of getting married young. And then the kids come along and careers. And often these parents don't learn how to deal with their own conflict and tension, but they're so busy raising the family and with their their jobs or careers that they really never deal with that underlying tension. And then when the kids are grown and move away to go to college or training, training, some other kind of training school work, whatever, military service, there they are in the empty nest, as it's called, looking at each other saying, what do we have in common? And oh, by the way, I can't stand you because they've never, they've never dealt with, you know, the issues. It's very, very common. And sometimes they've gone to, you know, marital counseling and tried to work on it, on their marriage. But uh, often there's too much of the proverbial water under the bridge and they decide whatever life I have left at 50 or 60 or 70, 45, uh, I want to be happy. And they split. Well, let's talk about that concept of happiness because that was a that was a hot button um, in my marriage where you know I had very small children at the time, uh, three months old and two and a half years old, and my my ex husband said to me, "Well." It doesn't matter. I said, we should work on this. We should try these things. You know, let's, we have children. We owe it to them, you know, this whole thing. And he's like, look, if I'm not happy, then the kids are not going to be happy. And, you know, I still scratch my head in that, Carol and Bruce, because nobody's happy all the time. And, you know, kids don't make you happy. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they drive you nuts. Relationships don't make you happy. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they drive you nuts. But this concept of seeking my own happiness first when you have a family in tow, 
I really have mixed feelings about, is that a valid reason? Because I believe happiness comes from within. I believe happiness needs to be created. Um, it's not just switching partners around till you find your happiness. So I, I would really like you to demystify that for me personally and for our audience. Because I think that's a lot of people say that. Oh, well, I was unhappy. Well, I'm thinking of a quote that uh, from the famous Greek philosopher Anonymous. <laughs> we don't know who said it, but... You know, it's not uh, happiness that makes you grateful. It's being grateful that makes you happy. And so if somebody is unhappy, that's probably not going to come from a lot of external. That's going to be from their, their own inner self. And I think that in our culture, it's, it's not that men don't work on themselves, but it's not as common mm -hmm. for men to be brought up to work on themselves. You know, we're generally look, you know, thinking about, you know, how to win, how to, how to not lose, how to don't let them see a sweat. And so it takes, you know, a certain amount of uh, self-knowledge to, to decide you want to work on yourself. And so it, while it is true, if you were unhappy all the time and your kids saw you unhappy and, and you were not at your best because you were unhappy, that, that's likely true. The kids could easily become unhappy. But the solution is not just to move around or, or jump ship. And, and I guess I would say that's a conversation for people to have before they get married, too, about kids and responsibilities and, and those various things. Um, it's also true that men and women are raised in very, in very different cultures. In fact, it, that's a good model for it. I, I didn't create the model, but I like it that for men and women to understand each other, it, it'd be like somebody being raised in Japan and somebody being raised in the United States. Or although it looks like we're learning the same things, we're speaking English. But the, the aims of our, our conversation, even men structure conversation in a certain way to get a certain result that's foreign to women. Also, you've maybe seen this phenomena, uh, maybe at a church function or a social function, a networking function, where um, you'll bump into a man that you know. And, and, um, and he'll say, how, oh, your hair looks really nice today, or oh, a nice dress, or, you know, trying to be appropriate about it, but some way complimenting you, you know? And then uh, if two women see each other, they'll each one tell each other how, how wonderful they look and how nice it is. But for instance, if we were at a Rotary Club or something, and, uh, you know, um, I was telling you how, how, you know, nicely you're dressed and you're complimenting me, if a guy came up, if he knew me well enough, what he might say instead of how nice I looked, he might say, Hey, didn't you wear that shirt last week? Or, uh, well, and I, and my job is not to get all upset and hurt. My job is to say, why, why no? But, uh, when are you going to do something about that punch? Or are you still driving the same old wreck? And then the women go back to complimenting each other. So it just shows you how men and women approach things differently. And it's not just that that scene I described is bizarre. What's really bizarre is nobody comments on how bizarre it is. Right. <laughs> I wanted to underscore a couple of things that you said too, Sandra. Uh, happiness is definitely an inside job. Years ago, there was a Catholic priest who wrote a book, which I never read, but a number of my clients told me it was really good. And that was the title, Happiness is an Inside Job. I have a cartoon board in my waiting room. And on one of the cartoons, it's a guy sitting with his therapist. And the therapist says, you know, Joe, when it comes right down to it, the only one that's really responsible for your happiness is you. And Joe's thinking, time for a new therapist. 
<laughs> and so I was going to say too, as, as Bruce said, uh, before leaving a marriage, because you think you're not happy, explore with someone, a professional a counselor, clergy, why are you not happy? And it may not be about the marriage at all. A lot of times people throw out the baby with the bathwater, as they say. So that's an important thing to encourage people to do first. You know, the program Alcoholics Anonymous talks about uh, making a geographic where people just move geographically, thinking that's going to fix their problems. But it doesn't, because wherever we go, there we are. So I would really encourage the listeners before they leave a marriage to look inside and probably have some professional help or clergy to help them do that. Right, because what I've seen in my experience, you know, being a single mom now for 13 years and or 16 years, I guess now, and watching my friends divorce and remarry quickly, you know, they're, they, it's almost like a drug. You know, they're in this marriage, they're so unhappy, but they're unhappy on for a lot of things. They're overweight, they're in poor shape, their, you know, career isn't where or what they want it to be. They're not doing the things that they enjoy. They come home, they, you know, watch TV, they argue with their spouse, they complain about food, and then, you know, go to bed and get up and do it all over again, thinking that magically, that if they just change out like the, the puzzle piece, you know, take the blue, we always talk about Legos in my world. You know, take the blue Lego out and put a red Lego in, you know, that's the new wife, the, yeah, it's going to work for a while because there's that whole excitement that infuses you with the new relationship. You know, you're, you're crushing on this person. You feel so good about them so that magically they must be the solution. But more often than what I find, Carolyn Bruce, and I found this in myself in my first relationship post my divorce is the problems that I had with my marriage were still with me because <laughs> the problems were within me. And once the blush of the new relationship isn't there masking all the problems, you know, I'm like, I still don't like my job. I still don't like where I live. I still don't like these things. And it was a big aha to me going, okay, if you're going to be happy, what are you going to do to be happy? Not just moving people around like chess pieces. Mm -hmm. I think it's important too, you, you're so wise, the metaphors that you use, Sandra, you said uh, they remarry quickly, it's like a drug. Uh, our neurochemistry is exactly that. We know from the neuroscience that when we're in love, uh, the do our dopamine circuit is triggered, which is our pleasure center in our brain. So truly, it is like a drug. I wanted to make sure the listeners understood that. It's, it is a reality. It's a, one of our biochemicals that makes us feel better. Also, uh, Sandra, you talked about the newness of the excitement of a new relationship. And uh, the comedian Chris Rock has a great line. He said, the, the, when you first meet me, the first 90 days, you're not meeting me, you're meeting my representative. Right. And, and at the beginning of a new relationship, each person is on their best behavior. And I've had people meet somebody and they'll tell me, oh, I've met my soulmate. You know, they're, and I say, how long have you been out with them? And I, it'd be, you know, two, three months. And I'll say, oh, well, then uh, have, you, have they seen your, your, your angry side yet, your cranky side? And, and they'll say, well, no. And I'll say, well, I wonder what they haven't been showing you yet. Because really for maybe the first six months, we're presenting ourselves to the person as if we're there only for them. We're going to fill all the emotional holes that you have left over from these other people. And you can count on me. And once that honeymoon period goes by, 
and they, each one starts to let their guard down and start bringing up the idea that maybe they're not just there for them, they're there for themselves. And they, and you know, I want what I want and I want it right now. The problem comes up that you want what you want and you want it right now, but they're not the same thing we want right now. So when people think they're going to solve it with a new relationship, well, maybe, but you won't know that for about 18 months. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, it's, it's, you know, 18 months or even sooner. You know, I remember I was dating a, a fellow, a very nice man, and he thought I was the cat's pajamas. And I was, we went to some seafood place and like 45 minutes after the date, we're driving home, you guys, and this is in LA. So we're going over the Canyon and I'm like, Oh no, I think I'm going to be sick. I think I'm going to be sick. I had to tell him to pull over the side of the canyon and I threw up the whole dinner. You know, it was something, some bad seafood. It smelled terrible, you know, and I'm like, can you hold my hair back? Cause I have a lot of hair. And he was just so horrified seeing me like throw up on the side of the road. And that was the end of the date. Cause as long as I looked pretty, I was dressed up nice and, and fit into his picture of what his new life should be. His new life didn't include holding my hair back, you know, as I threw up some shrimp dinner that that didn't agree with me. And it was amazing to me how that could go from, wow, I think you're the greatest thing since sliced bread to next. Well, ornaments aren't supposed to throw up. So. <laughs> <laughs> we're so, hey, this is defective. I you know we're, there's a bad spring or something here. Yeah. So what I want to talk about today too, because this was something that that really uh, caused me a lot of hardship in my divorce process was the idea of a high conflict divorce. And I didn't even know what that was till one of the court. Um, appointed people that were helping me and my kids, she looked at me and she goes, you realize you're in a high conflict divorce. <laughs> and I said, I don't even know what that means because I had a high conflict marriage. I had a high conflict, you know, to me, it was normal. It was normal for all these crazy, crazy things to happen. And I want to talk today about the high conflict divorce, because when you have a nice divorce, you don't need therapists. When you have kids and there's two people that just hold hands and say, we don't love each other and go off into the sunset. I don't know if there's people like that, but maybe there are. Mm -hmm. But for some of us with kids, especially and money, it becomes a battleground of power and control. And I'd like to talk about the high conflict divorce today because I didn't know I was in one until about halfway through enough to know to look up to help myself because we throw these words around. Oh, it's a high conflict divorce. But what does that really mean? What does that look like? Just because he wasn't punching me in the head every day, I didn't think it was a high conflict divorce. So who would like to field that first? I'll start. Okay. So, um, Bill Eddy, who's a former family therapist and a family lawyer down in San Diego, uh, coined the term high conflict personality and his uh, free website high conflict institute is a wealth of information and I really encourage people to check it out the high conflict institute he actually wrote a foreword for our book um, and I learned a lot studying with him over the years um, 
high conflict people, and you're right, Sandra, there is confusion in our culture. If someone isn't being beaten and bloodied, they don't think it's a high conflict marriage or divorce, but that isn't accurate. High conflict people are inflexible. Mm -hmm. uh, they aren't willing to hear the other person's side. They don't know how to listen intently. Uh, you mentioned power and control. It is absolutely about that. It's a win-lose mentality that they have. And often they're quite self-absorbed, uh, can't really walk a mile in the other person's moccasins, as the saying goes. And uh, if, if some of the listeners are feeling like in their marriage, they're always the one who's wrong and their spouse is, quote, always the one who's right, likely that is a high conflict marriage. That one up, one down, you know, uh, power struggle is very common with high conflict people. And when those people finally decide to divorce, one of them usually decides, those dynamics move right into the divorce process where there is no compromise, there is no being flexible, there is no really caring about the other spouse, the other parent of their children, their children. I mean, the list goes on. And it gets played out with uh, money, the power and control about money, or power and control about the children and access to the children. Well, and some of the things like that were red flags when I look back on it, but I didn't realize it at the time that was pervasive in my marriage, but also through the divorce, it just was escalated in the divorce, were things like um, money. You know, do I get money to buy groceries or not, even though I'm a breadwinner? You know, that kind of, I, I, I think there's a term financial abuse, you know, where, where you hold money over people or withhold money or, you know, if you go out and you buy some things for the kids, there's criticism. And what I realized was I started to hide stuff. I started to hide my purchases. I started to do these things, even though I was the primary breadwinner, which shows you how crazy, you know, this stuff can get, but also it can be power and control over food. You put a dinner down, you make a nice dinner and there's too much salt there's too much you know picking on something versus being you know grateful or appreciative of the work you know I bought the wrong orange juice I bought the wrong apples you know I only like granny smith I don't like red delicious and it sounds stupid but when it adds up over time and the point at which I knew something was really wrong was, and again, this was another thing that I didn't recognize until after the fact, my ex would like me to pick him up from the airport on a trip. And he traveled a lot for work. And I would say, look, you know, I'm pregnant. I've got a toddler. I've got to work. It's really hard for me. And if I would make the effort to go pick him up at the airport, he would complain to me I was late. And I got to the point where I would write the truth down on post-its. Mm -hmm. The plane landed at 10.50. I was in the parking lot by 10.45. You know, you were getting your bags at 10.50. And then I'd hide those post-its in my kitchen, in the cabinets, because we know he's not going to put dishes away. But I put them behind the cabinets. And that was my truth. Mm -hmm. And you start getting really distorted because you're like, well, maybe I do spend too much. Then it's like, wait a minute, but I make the money. And, you know, how can you spend too much on diapers? You know, and it starts to get this kind of fuzzy, crazy head. And you don't know which way is up or down. And that's when I went to a therapist because I thought I was losing my mind. Yes. 
that's exactly what happens. That feeling of surreal, surrealness, and am I the crazy one? Yeah. Usually, I mean, we don't use the word crazy. We use it in quotation marks, of course. But I tell clients, if you've been thinking, am I the crazy one? Probably you're not. It's probably the other way around. And you've got to learn about these dynamics. Yeah. And they're, they're you know, they there's a lot of them. You know, like that's if you're listening today and you're kind of checking off the boxes. Like, you know, I just cleaned the whole house top to bottom and my ex comes in and he says, what's this male doing on the counter? You know, the whole house is spotless. You're going to find right. the one little thing to pick on, you know, and I looked at this stuff just as my ex-husband being kind of a pain in the ass or, you know, picky or, you know, you, you don't, you don't have the tools in the situation, but there was always a pit in my stomach that goes, wow, I think something's really wrong. But the thing is, I didn't know if it was me the marriage, the person, the situation, and being me, I took it on as my fault. Right. Yeah. Very, very common. It is. And um, when you were saying that, you know, you didn't know you were in a high conflict divorce because, you know, you were used to that going on in the marriage. Right. And uh, one of the things that we tell people sometimes is, uh, you know, don't expect the divorce to be any easier than the marriage was. If, you know, if the marriage was hard, that this person isn't going to, or, or neither one of you, and as I was talking earlier about the, the different programming men and women have and the things we're taught to look for in a mate aren't necessarily the things that are really healthy. Like women are a lot of times taught to look for, well, you know, tall, dark and inside, you know, the silent type. And I started to wonder, so when did becoming inarticulate become attractive? You know, it's how, how's that sexy? And, but that idea of being in control and I'll take care of you, which is kind of the implied promise that if people, you know, when they don't have total control over you, but that's their default, they'll often come in and, and women have been taught to appreciate things like somebody picking the restaurant or doing this or doing that rather than asking, hey, where, would you, where, where shall we eat? And part of it's just a cultural thing. And guys, and it's the guys who are not well socialized that, uh, you know, get over aggressive or over controlling. And so when now behind closed doors, they're free to, you know, treat you like the possession that you've suddenly become. And, you know, you were so sweet before just going into, you know, putting up with whatever, whatever they wanted. And you described yourself as someone who would try to make it better or wonder if it's you. And so, you know, that would just encourage all that, you know, it's. It's well, and it falls apart when you have kids, you know, yeah. when you have, especially little ones, like both of my right. mine were premature, they had health issues, you know, so you just, you get to the point where you, who's the bigger baby, you know, who, who do you juggle with? Who do you pick? You know, do you pick your infant that needs a, you know, a diaper change, your toddler who's cranky, who needs whatever, or the husband that comes home and demands you know, attention demands that, you know, right away. I remember, again, in my early, right before my marriage ended, my ex-husband complained I was tired all the time because I would work all day, childcare all night, cook and clean, you know, and then I'm too tired to watch TV. I'm too tired to go out to a club. Well, who goes out to a club when they're nursing? I mean, you know, things like well, that now. When apparently I'm, not you. Yeah, apparently <laughs> not me. Um, but I look back to those things and I encourage our listeners to just sit down with themselves. And instead of just kind of being brainwashed by you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're not good enough, is to sit down and just for a second go, who am I now? 
because I went from a very confident, successful, dynamic woman to someone, and this is when I filed for divorce, I can remember the moment. I was driving up the canyon as fast as I could so I could get home to get stuff ready with the two kids, getting dinner on the table so that my ex-husband, who wasn't working, was going to come home from the gym, wouldn't be upset. You know, how crazy, how crazy is that? But the fear is real. And the one thing that I identified is when the fear started, I felt like I was drowning and I didn't know where to turn because I'd moved 3,000 miles away from my family, you know, no social support, new community, things like that. If you're experiencing some of these things, it's time to reach out wherever you are in your pre-divorce, your consideration, or your divorce process to talk to someone. Because Bruce, how do you help someone? You know, what does that look like? Can we demystify and can we take the fear out of calling up someone and saying, I need help. Well, one of the advantages I have over the people who call me up is if they're going through a divorce or a bad marriage, it's for them most of the time, first time around. Don't know what's normal. Like you discovered you were in a high conflict divorce when somebody at the court, I guess it was, who's seen hundreds or thousands of people go through divorces and was able to right away, jumped out right away to her or him that this is not normal. But this is your first rodeo. How would you know what's normal with that, you know? And then if people are just consulting with, if it's a litigated divorce and they've got a lawyer and both people's lawyers are hearing bad things about the other person and they see their job is to go and, and, uh, you know, wreak havoc on the, the person who's causing trouble for the poor client. But so if people call me or they call, call Carol, you know, we have the advantage of we've seen a lot of this. So we are able to help them know what's normal, what's not normal. But also we can help people with their communication processes. Like, you know, by the time you decided to, to leave your husband, it's, I'm, I'm guessing there wasn't anybody going to convince you it was worth staying there anymore because it had already been too much. But if, if early on, if he had been willing and somebody had pointed that out to you, Go talk to somebody who's spent, you know, years learning how to help people with this and, and could have given some comparisons and, and point out the obvious. When, when, you're, when you've spent a lot of time in your body growing a baby, and then when the baby comes out, that the job's not done. Now you're not sleeping, and it's not comfortable to try and stay up when you haven't had any sleep or to get up and do things. And to try and do double or triple duty where you're taking care of all the other things at the home and then you come home and somebody wants your attention and you've been waiting for the relief shift to, to show up, um, to have conversations about that topic. You know, this is what's happening with me, you know, and this is what I would uh, like you to understand. And, and, and it's hard for people to do that on their own because once people get into arguments, everything's linked to everything else. Yes. So if, uh, if I admit that I'm wrong here, then you can say, yeah, and what about the time last Tuesday? And, and pretty soon I'm confessing to the Chicago fire. And I'm the one who gave the apple to the snake or whatever. Right, I started no. Corona. And so, yeah, <laughs> right. And so uh, that's the advantage of going to a, to a third party. And, but so you want to check out their credentials. Like, you know, somebody went for a divorce coach and their only qualification is that they got divorced. Well, that's not much of a, I mean, that doesn't mean they're a bad person, but it doesn't teach them about the nuts and bolts. I, I've had a lot of dental work, but you'd be crazy to let 
let me try and fill one of your teeth. I, you know, sure. I don't know how to do that. And so well, that's like what my I do. first therapist I went to, I didn't have the languaging, you know, I didn't have the high conflict divorce label or something to express what is happening. And the first therapist I went to was not skilled in dealing with narcissists, was not skilled in dealing with high conflict relationships. And she told me to go home and tell my husband, communicate with him how I feel, write this long letter to him, tell him how I feel. And all it did was give him an, an arsenal of ammunition to fire back at me, humiliate and shame me. You know, now then I went to a different therapist because I'm like, well, that didn't work. And, you know, she was so lovely. And in, in five minutes, she said, does, you know, ask me a couple questions. She's like, this is what's happening to you. You know, you're not crazy. You're not this, this is what situation you're in. And when one session with my ex-husband, she said, after she took me aside and said, you need to leave him. This is not safe. This is not safe for you. And she says, I'm very worried about you. And it did escalate and it did blow up. And, you know, we went to her a couple of times and then, you know, as soon as she started correcting him, we moved to another therapist. That was another thing is we did all this jumping. So we had three or four marriage counselors. And then even during our high conflict divorce, um, my older son has been to 11 different therapists, not because he chose or I chose, but as soon as the therapist tells the high conflict person something they don't like, They'll go after their license. That happened with one of our therapists. One of them, he got in a screaming match. You know, the other one, he said, I'm going to take you to court for fraud, you know, and then, and then nobody wants to treat you. Right. Word right. gets around. It's interesting. Uh, the good friend of mine had just a really good definition of the, dis the distinction between a sociopath and a, and a toxic narcissist. A, uh, a toxic narcissist will screw you over just as much as a sociopath, but then they insist that you worship them for it. You know, they, and, and so the way I don't know your, your ex-husband, but when you're describing that, that phenomena of, you know, and yeah, and anybody who gets close to the family dynamic, that therapist is just going to be replaced. You know, they, right. and it is very, very difficult. We tend to work in teams when we do divorce work because it is so difficult. In addition, you're probably dealing with a high conflict person when if you're in uh, the divorce process and they keep changing attorneys, just as you were saying, Sandra, about changing therapists. That's a pretty good indicator. It's a high conflict person. Right. Or, the, or in my case, which I love, the attorney fired him. Or that too. Yes. You know, that was the, you know, the first one got, he got rid of the second one. I get a notice in the, the mail going, you know, he's no longer representing him. And I, you know, I had no idea what was going on until finally my attorney goes, yeah, he fired him, you know, but, but that changing, like, you know, my whole point of sharing, you know, airing my dirty laundry, if you will, but sharing these things is not to elicit sympathy, but for other men and women to recognize right. the signs, you know, recognize if you're going to marriage counseling and you're in your third or fourth counselor, because he gets mad or she gets mad and, and, and then discredits them, you know, cause the other thing too, is a lot of discrediting in the high conflict divorce, high conflict um, relationship is the discrediting of anybody who is deemed a threat. 
So if you're a friend, you know, I remember my one good girlfriend who's still my friend now, she's like, look, you're drowning. You don't even know enough to swim. You need to get out of this relationship. And she took me to um, a program for women. And I didn't even think of myself as an abused woman. You know, I didn't, I didn't think of that. I didn't have bruises. My ex-husband didn't hit me in public until two years after our divorce was final. You know, I was a single emancipated woman, but the patterns are there if you know what to look for. The problem is, is when you're in the middle of it, you're just trying to survive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can be very hard. I mean, that's why I said we work in teams with these really hard ones because it can be overwhelming for anybody. So if you're in that kind of a relationship, the amount of work it would take to fix it sometimes for some people isn't going to be worth the effort. And I'm not talking about people should throw in the towel just because things aren't working out, but a situation like you described and and Carol, maybe you would agree, but there's something that just, even if if you could fix it, how much could you fix it? Right. And Sandra, you like to use metaphors. This is another one I share with my clients. You know, they did research and I think your listeners will relate to this. Um, If you take a frog and you put it in a beaker of water. Have you heard this one? Yes. But please <laughs> share it. Okay. And then you turn the Bunsen burner on and it slowly warms up until it's boiling. The frog dies. It boils to death. If you take a frog and drop it into a beaker of boiling water, it jumps out. Right. And whether that's a true story or not, but it sounds nice. It's a great metaphor for how this abuse is more subtle in the beginning and yep. as time goes on. It gets more and more intense, and yet we can still not see it. It's it's quite subtle how this happens. Well, it's like, you know, when you have a friend, and you haven't seen him for a couple of years, and they lose 50 pounds, and they come to you, and you're all of a sudden, you're like, wow, you look fantastic. But, like, my son lost 50 pounds, my younger son, and he... It took him like seven months and people would be astounded when they hadn't seen him for a while. But I didn't, I mean, I knew he was different because I had to buy different size clothes, but I didn't make the connection to the before and after. And that's just what it's like to be in a high conflict relationship and a high conflict divorce. And the other thing I think is really hard. And this is something that I didn't understand is a lot of times the high conflict person is super charming. They're very smart. They know how to paint a picture. They know how to elicit sympathy. And I remember the one therapist who was the one that told me to pour my heart out to my husband. She bought my ex-husband's story hook, line, and sinker. She was charmed by him. You know, he was charming. He was funny. He was commanding, all this stuff. And I was just this kind of poor idiot sitting next next to him. But I will tell you the next therapist that we went to, the one who, who nailed it right on the head, as soon as my ex-husband started talking, her foot would twitch. <laughs> and I remember sitting there cause I didn't say much in these sessions. You know, I would just sit there and I'd watch her foot tap, 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 tap. And I'm a big watcher of body language. And I, as she started speaking, I knew she understood. She wasn't buying for one minute the the story he was telling because these people too are also master manipulators and master storytellers. 
Yes. Well, you know, it's easy to, to hurt somebody if they don't, if you, they didn't, you know, they don't notify you, you're in a war with them. Like if you enter a marriage and the whole idea is we're going to work on things together. And if you're with somebody whose main aim in life is to control people or to not be found out for who they really are. So they are always on the offense because that's what you do. You're always on the offense if you're trying to shut people down and you want to control them. And, but, if, but, you know, who's going to expect that, you know, especially if they, they've been nice at the beginning or they've, you know, sure. not shown that side. I mean, a six-year-old can kill you if they don't tell you that they're going to, you know, break your nose anyway, they, they hit you in the face. But, but we don't expect that in our own home, in our own relationships to somebody. And especially if people are, you know, will distort or lie over and over. I tend to trust the people in my life. Otherwise, they wouldn't have them in my life, you know. Sure. Carol, did you want to chime in? I think uh, what I really hope the listeners are getting is how difficult it is for the person in the high conflict relationship and or divorce to be aware of it. Yeah. Because it's like that saying, can't see the forest for the trees. And to trust someone like your friend, Sandra, who told you, you know, you, you're, you're drowning in, in this water and you don't even know you need to start swimming mm -hmm. and to look to outside sources because when we're in it, it's very difficult to see. It's a, it's a very complex dynamic. It's almost like being a prisoner of war Yes, um, that they can't really see what's going on uh, imprisoned. In fact, a lot of people say, I felt like I was in prison mm -hmm. looking back and when we're in it, we can't always see it. So that's oh. what I'd really like the listeners to know. Well, because you, you know, a lot of this stuff doesn't happen in a vacuum. You know, I had two little kids. My mom was diagnosed with cancer. I'm working a full-time job. You know, what Bruce was talking about earlier, you know, you've got all these plates in the air. You've got all these wheels in the air. Um, but the one thing that I really noticed, you guys, that was a big aha for me, other than the post-its all over my house, you know, that had, had the accurate, you know, kind of the truth mm -hmm. on them, was the pers the constant like I started counting during the day how many criticisms was I given just a really simple because you can count like even no matter how confused you are you can count and so I would start up in the morning and I'd be like you know and I'd take a little post-it or a scratch pad by the kitchen table and I would put a check mark because I didn't even realize they were criticisms because they kind of come off as helpful. I know better, you know, less, you know, all these things. And, you know, by the, by the end of the morning, you know, this is a Saturday, I had a whole post-it full of criticisms and I'm like, and I remember thinking to myself, how is this a relationship? Because a relationship should build you up, should support you. And so one of the things like, you know, it's just an easy metric is look at the number of unkind, unhelpful, hurtful, insulting things. And if you hear these things is, oh, I'm just kidding. It's just a joke. Um, what else did I hear? Oh, you're the crazy one. You're too sensitive. You're emotional. Like, I think this is like from the, from the, like the high conflict handbook that they memorize these. And when you hear these things, you know, like that's a really good sign. Those are the things that I started hearing. And I'm like, wow. And then I started looking at, is everybody else an idiot? Is everybody else a jerk? Is this person always the hero of their own story? 
you know, these kind of are textbook. I don't know if there's a textbook out there, but these are textbook things that I heard again and again, and the therapist pointed them out to me, and I started checking them off on my little scratch pad. Sounds to me like that, oh, like that old Richard Pryor line, who are you going to believe, me or your lion eyes? Yeah. Yeah, using that technique that you did with marking down all the criticisms is an excellent metric to have be, to be looking back at us because it breaks the denial, you know, and I wanted to comment too. You said uh, the person will say, I was just joking. Um, you're too sensitive. You know, I tell clients that drunken words, joking words, angry words are truthful words, meaning that the person, when they're saying it, means it. So don't let them discount themselves and what and the impact of what they're saying by by passing it off that way because it is a way to disguise the slings and arrows that are coming at you. Yeah, I mean, and it's how can you like when I filed for divorce, and this is the the last thing I'll end with, and then I'll ask you guys, you know, what what you think about it. When you're going through the divorce process prior to filing. You're in your head going, should I, shouldn't I? You search the internet, you talk to trusted friends, you know, you, you journal, you go through all these machinations. And the point at which I knew I was ready to file was the, that situation with the car that pushed me over the edge that I would, could have gotten a car accident with my two children and me just so someone wouldn't be angry. But I woke up in the morning filing and I was at peace. The first time I went to file, the attorney kind of yelled at me and he goes, all you women sound the same. You say the same story. What makes you any different? How come you didn't know who you married? And then I went home and cried and it was another eight months till I could face another attorney. But when I went to the attorney the second time and my kids threw Cheerios all over this expensive office, I didn't care, you know, but I was calm. I was peaceful. I was ready. And I would encourage people, unless your life is in danger, try to get to that place of peace where you're able to function. Because when you go in in fear, you go in in chaos, you go in in all that, the attorneys a lot of times will just rip you apart and send you home and, and you've done nothing. You've got to get to that place of peace where you don't need to ask people, is this right or wrong anymore? And I think it will come. Just make sure you're safe. It does take time. You're right, Sandra, to go through that. And we really encourage people. Information is helpful. Getting educated, talking to different people. You know, as you said, a trusted friend, talking to someone, a clergy member who maybe works with people who are divorcing. We're not encouraging divorce, but we're saying that if it's inevitable and you've tried everything else, then Consult with people outside of your friends, like your friend, I mean, outside of yourself, where your friend told you you needed to be swimming and you didn't even know it. Or you may talk to three or four attorneys, you know, but you're getting education, you're getting information. And that's how we make our best decisions. And it is important to make sure you're safe. Right. And you're going to be afraid. I think it was also lucky for you that you didn't decide to choose an attorney who is going to reenact your abuser by criticizing you and telling you how horrible you were (laughs) for not liking that. Mm -hmm. Yes. Glad you got away from that one. Yeah, because I do think they tend to cluster to certain. I've seen them a lot in the military. I see them a lot in police. I see them a lot in attorneys. I see a lot of doctors. Because once you identify it, you can spot them a mile away. 
Rigidity. Rigidity is a common theme. They're rigid Mm -hmm. and controlling. So tell us where we can find your book, because I do find, too, some of the women that I've talked to, especially, you know, come to me after my radio shows, they listen to me, or they write in. Uh, They are grade divorced. They have lived with a high-conflict person, and then when the kids are grown, they're like, I'm done. I'm done with him. I've had enough. I don't want to put up with this anymore. I put up with it with my kids, because that's what I hear. That's what they write to me, and I'm done. And I'm like, I get it. It's okay. You're done. Um, where do we find the home will never be the same again, the book about gray divorce? Because whether you're high conflict in your 40s, 50s, or 60s, or 70s, it's all the same. Right. It's available on Amazon, uh, and it's also available on Amazon as an audiobook and Kindle book, and as well as a paper. Wonderful. Wonderful. So we've got all different ways that we can listen. We can learn. Do you guys have a website that you'd like to, I know you, you mentioned the high conflict Institute, which I'm going to go to right after our recording today, but how can people find out more about you guys? Well, uh, my website is drcarolhughes.com and that's my therapy website. And then my divorce website, which is another side of my practice is called divorcepeacemaking.com because the goal is to help people, if they're going to divorce, do it in a respectful, peaceful, honorable way. It's family focused, not individual focused. Love that. And Bruce? Uh, Well, our our practice group is Collaborative Divorce Solutions, Orange County. And so they'd be able to find us on that, as well as other professionals who are dedicated to helping people have more family-focused divorce processes. And then my uh, therapy website's under construction, but my uh, other website is orangecountydivorcecoach.com. And then there's the International Association of Collaborative Professionals, which is another resource for people. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, you guys, thank you so much for talking about high conflict divorce today. And thank you for the many families you help. Thank you for your book, which is home will never be the same again. We'll be back again next week with another great episode. Thanks for spending time with us today on Military Mom Talk Radio. We've got more than 200 episodes available to you anytime on iTunes or at our website, MilitaryMomTalkRadio.com. Find us on Facebook or Twitter. We look forward to another great conversation with you on Military Mom Talk Radio.